0: The the gender pay gap is this measure of the difference in pay between men and women but there are various different ways of calculating it and at the moment we simply do not have a detailed enough analysis for it to show that men and women are being, uh, you know, that that we don't have equal pay Um, and equal pay itself is something very different that is often conflated with the gender pay gap um, but which is illegal in Britain today, it has been since 1970, you cannot pay men and women differently for doing the same. Sure.
1: Hello and welcome to the IA YouTube channel. My name is Reem Ibrahim and I'm the Communications Officer and Linda Wetson Scholar here at the Institute of Economic Affairs. According to the Office for National Statistics, among full-time employees, the gender pay gap as of April 2022 was 8.3%. But does this really tell us the full picture? It's been illegal in this country to pay men and women differently for the same job since the Equal Pay Act came into force in 1970. Gender pay gap reporting, introduced in 2017 for companies with over 250 employees, doesn't take into account key differentials such as type of experience, type of job and background. It quite literally means that companies like EasyJet have been publicly demonized for reporting a pay gap of over 50%. But of course, The difference in pay for different roles is not taken into account. Just 5% of its pilots, who are paid an average of £89,000 a year, are female, whereas women make up 70% of cabin crew, who are paid under £24,000. Should companies be demonised for paying pilots and cabin crew differently? Furthermore, gender pay gap reporting doesn't distinguish between full-time workers and part-time workers. Given women who become mothers are more likely to work part-time, for which the average salary tends to be lower gender pay gap reporting is almost guaranteed to reveal that men earn more. It's incredibly deceitful to suggest to women that they are being paid lower wages than their male counterparts for doing the same job and will have to work longer for less. We should stop misinforming girls that no matter how hard they try, they'll never be as successful as their male counterparts. Especially at a time where women are making incredible advances in the workplace and in society as a whole to debunk the gender pay gap and provide possible solutions to the childcare cost conundrum. I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Annabel Denham for this week's episode of Breaking Barriers. Annabel is the deputy comment editor at The Telegraph and former director of communications here at the IEA. So Annabel, I was wondering if we could first off and start talking about what the gender pay gap actually is at the moment.
0: Sure. And I think that's a really sensible opening question because there are a lot of myths uh, out there and a lot of misinformation and a general widespread belief that there's a whopping difference in pay between men and women who are doing the same job. uh, And there isn't. So put simply, the gender pay gap is A measure of what women are paid relative to men and there are various ways of calculating this. Now the Office for National Statistics publishes its ASH survey uh, every year and in it it calculates the median hourly earnings of full-time and part-time workers excluding overtime. And from this, uh, it's able to calculate a a gender pay gap between men and women. And typically it's around um, 8%. And that's fluctuated in recent years, partly because of the pandemic, but we are seeing overall a downward trend, which of course is, is broadly positive, but, the data are flawed in that they don't go into any kind of uh, level of detail that would be required to suggest that men and women are being paid differently for doing the same job. So, um, you know, there's a limited statistical analysis there. um, And we we don't always get, you know, comparisons between those who are doing the same job, uh, those who have the same background, the same education level, same, you know, degrees, the same years of work experience. So that is one Thing that has been reasonably long-standing, but in 2017, when changes were brought into the Equality Act, um, the government introduced gender pay gap reporting measures, and this was a requirement of all businesses, all organisations with a headcount of over 250, to report uh, on their gender pay gaps. And these figures needed to include the mean gap in hourly pay, the median gap in hourly pay, the mean bonus gap, the median Bonus gap, the proportion receiving a bonus payment, and the proportion in each pay quartile. Now, this data is then uh, uploaded to a publicly accessible. Database with no context whatsoever. And every year that it has been published, it was suspended for a time during the pandemic, but every year that it's been published, people have gone onto the website. They've seen that there are these pay gaps between men and women, and there has been outcry. And companies that have been shown to have a large gender pay gap in favour of men, importantly, it's in favour of men. Rarely do you hear uh, outrage when there's a pay gap in favour of women, but those companies that have this this. this large pay gap in favor of men Are often uh, demonised and uh, criticised widely by the media, by uh, campaign groups, and sometimes by uh, politicians in the Labour Party as well. So, you know, long story long, um, the the gender pay gap is this measure of the difference in pay between men and women, but there are various different ways of calculating it. And at the moment, we simply do not have a detailed enough analysis for it to show that men and women are being, uh, you know, that there we don't have equal pay. Um, And equal pay itself is something very different that is often conflated with the gender pay gap, um, but which is illegal in Britain today. It has been since 1970. You cannot pay men and women differently for doing the same job.
1: Thank you. I think that's a fantastic summary. And obviously, with the uh, sort of government requirement here to, for those uh, companies that do have a headcount of, of over 150, it means that the government are effectively requiring the, those companies to publicise what their gender pay gap is. Now, of course, most people in the media, as you said, will jump to conclusions and argue that this is a result of sexism in the workplace, or simply down to the fact that women are being paid less for the same amount of work. Why is it that these stats just don't have the, so don't show the evidence evidence for that.
0: Well, I think the first problem, as I say, is that they simply uh, don't have enough of a breakdown. So, um, I mean, gender pay gap reporting um, data that companies are now forced to pull together and publish, um, you know, they are not, they are comparing um, the role of a CEO with somebody who's at entry level. Um, A good example of a company that was uh, demonized uh, after the first um, year of gender pay gap reporting um, was EasyJet and you were comparing the pay of a pilot, a male pilot, with female cabin crew. And if you actually looked, uh, just scratched a tiny bit beneath the surface there, you would have seen that male pilots and female pilots were paid the same and male cabin crew and female cabin crew were paid the same. But because women uh, made up more um, cabin crew staff, men made up more pilots, around 5% of pilots uh, in Britain today are women, um, it was revealed, it seemed, to reveal that this company had a huge pay gap, um, but of course, gender pay gap, but of course um, it didn't. So, you know, it, it's not just that the data are very limited um, and you know, so limited as to be meaningless, but it's actually that it, it can bring all of these perverse consequences. So, like I say, you get uh, companies that are being unfairly villainized, and that can create some perverse incentives. So If you're a business like KPMG, another company that was widely criticized, uh, if you're an airline, um, you will be incentivized to take on fewer women at entry level or more junior um, levels, um, or possibly to outsource the work that is predominantly done by lower paid women. And that's not actually helping females in the workplace at all. Um, So it's utterly unnecessary but unfortunately, what we've seen over the last decade or so is a real sort of ratchet effect when it comes to labour market regulation. Um, and it now permeates all aspects of the workplace. And unfortunately, the gender pay gap reporting measures is just one part of that.
1: And I guess that's effectively a government regulation that means that companies now, you know, they have that kind of unintended consequences and actually doesn't benefit women at all, which is, I think, particularly interesting. So you said that there is you know, around an 8.2% 8, 8, 8. gender pay gap, according to the ONS. Why do we have that pay gap if it isn't? Because women are being paid less for the same amount of work.
0: Sure. So I think it's important to say that the gender pay gap is pretty much negligible now, um, until women hit the age of thirty-nine, um, and then you start to see it widening. Uh, in fact, in you know, for younger age groups, there is a negative uh, gender pay gap in some circumstances. Um, it's worth mentioning that women are paid more for part-time work uh, than uh, they are uh, than men are, and it's also worth mentioning that men actually are more likely to have part-time requests turned down. So. So the picture is is so much more nuanced than the headlines often uh, suggest but what happens to women as they go through their 30s well they often have children they take time out of the workplace um, in order to you know for maternity leave many will um, just off-ramp from work altogether those who do return to work might choose uh, roles which are less demanding they might not go for promotions because they want to have a better work-life balance they might go for part-time jobs and um, the IFS actually shows that there is a gender commuting gap uh, where women are essentially uh, fishing from a smaller pool of jobs uh, because they want to be closer to home perhaps they need to get back for nursery pickups and so on and so forth. Um, So rather than talking about a gender pay gap what we really ought to be doing is talking about a motherhood penalty and rather than trying to regulate for uh, pushing out any kind removing any kind of gender pay gap what we ought to be doing is looking looking at what the reasons are for women not returning to work after they've had their children is that a choice that they are happily making or are, do they feel forced into it because I, you know at the moment i think We're in a slightly dangerous position where politicians of all stripes are heavily implying that once maternity leave is up all women ought to be getting back into the workplace they should be contributing to the economy they ought to be paying their taxes and actually what we want to do is create an environment in which those women who want to be stay-at-home mums can do so those women who want to have part-time jobs are able to juggle both more easily and those who want to go back and work full-time can also do so.
1: Absolutely. So it seems as though, you know, looking at the evidence, the main gap is between mothers and non-mothers. And so, you know, we're talking about whether, why these women are able to then go home. I don't think we should necessarily be disincentivising women from taking time off of work if that's what they, they choose to do. Mm. But clearly there is a difference here, and there are more women that would like to be working that aren't able to afford to Obviously, we've seen, you know, over the over the course of the last 30 years, the government subsidise and overregulate the childcare industry. And this is part of the reason why a lot of women aren't able to then get back into work because childcare is effectively to eating up most of their income why is the childcare
0: industry so messed up? Sure, it's a real uh, sort of case study in how not Mm. to do government intervention. (laughs) So, uh, you know, until the 1990s, uh, childcare was largely a charitable or private matter. And then we've just had creeping uh, state interference in the sector ever since. And, you know, it's perhaps done with the best of intentions, but a lot of the time, I'm not sure politicians really know what the objective is. Are they trying to increase female market participation? Are they trying to improve educational attainment and young among young children, particularly those from disadvantaged backgrounds? Are they trying to ensure it's more accessible? They're trying to afford, ensure it's more affordable. And you know, as you can probably tell, Reem, some of these objectives are actually directly conflicting with one another. So it's all come together to create this this really unholy mess uh, in the sector. But uh, two things that the government is 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 really doing is it is restricting supply with formalization and regulation, while at the same time pumping up demand through subsidies. So when we look at regulation, now the government recently loosened teacher-to-child ratios in the childcare sector, and that was absolutely to be welcome, but they could go a lot further. There are some Scandinavian nations that have no um, state-mandated staff-to-child ratios. Um, We have something called the early years foundation stage. Framework, which is you know gradually morphing really into something like a national curriculum for toddlers. Well, I'm a mum, and when I send my children to nursery, I just want them to be in a safe and happy <laughs> environment with staff who feel passionately about working with children. I'm much more interested in in that and them getting social skills and exposure to other young children than I am whether they're able to thread a piece of string through <laughs> some penny or you know through. A, a, ever decreasing sort of size whole. (laughs) Um, And, you know, what we have is just layers and layers of it's a bureaucracy box ticking that staff now have to spend their time doing rather than spending that time engaging um with uh, the children in their care and that as you would expect is driving up costs if you've got very tight uh, staff to people ratios then nurseries need to hire more staff and they're only able to pay those staff a certain amount because they need to have a certain number of them um So that's sort of on the regulation side and of course, underpinning all of this is planning regulations. So the fact that it's so difficult to build anything in Britain means that the cost of renting or buying premises um, is higher than it could otherwise be. And then at the same time, the government provides um, free childcare now offers at the moment 15 free hours for uh, children over the age of three. Um, That increases to 30 hours if you uh, meet certain criteria and for lower income families it's actually available from the age of child turns two. But a problem with the subsidy is that the government pays below the market rate in a lot of areas. That's what you'd expect if it's standardised across the country. Um, And that forces nurseries to cross-subsidise with non-subsidy children so if you get your 15 free hours you may find that in order to get more than that because of course if you work full-time you're going to need more than 15 hours of childcare. that those additional hours are paid at a higher rate in order that nurseries can recoup some of their costs or it's more expensive for children under the age of two now the taxpayer spends around 5 or 6 billion pounds a year subsidizing childcare and that is set to increase because the conservative government this year announced that it would be expanding those uh, free hours and over the next couple of years it will be offering uh, 30 free hours to all children over the age of 9 months and again we're not entirely clear what, why the government is doing this. What is the actual objective other than people have been complaining about expensive childcare and the government wants to be able to offer some kind more of free stuff, solution, right? yeah. more free stuff. Um, but of course, most people don't want free stuff. They'd much rather have retained some of their tax, you know, taxes, the tax income, yeah. um, or perhaps be offered something like a voucher so that they get choice so they could spend it on childminders or they could you know, perhaps put it towards some kind of grandparental care um, but at the moment it feels as though they are being nudged into sending their children into what are increasingly heavily regulated childcare settings where they're going to be taught something that's almost becoming a national uh, curriculum um, and and as i say the whole thing is completely unnecessary and i just talked i just touch very briefly um, a little more on childminders because the introduction of the early years foundation stage and various other requirements have actually forced a lot of childminders out of the sector. Those that have
1: English as a second language or those that of course have, you know, less well-educated, you Mm -hmm. know, being actually being able to sort of uh, create those detailed records, effectively, that means that those individuals are pushed out of the sector. And of course, as we know, you know, with supply and demand, if there Mm -hmm. are less of those childminders, the costs will obviously go up. Um, I think it's particularly interesting, sorry to interrupt, but the, uh, Children and Families Minister Claire Coutinho very recently pushed Well, this now, blame. The energy, energy now
0: the energy sector. Now the energy sector, yes. of today.
1: <laughs> um, but she very recently said that uh, she wrote an open letter to landlords and other uh, stakeholders, effectively saying that they are to blame for the lack of childminders. Is this the case? Is 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 it is, is it that landlords are restricting uh, childminders from working from home, or is it actually that there are other other factors at play here?
0: Well, I think when it comes to childminders, you know, it's really a a problem of regulation. So as I say, they have to adhere to a lot of uh, bureaucracy. They have restrictions around whether they're able to look after their own children at the same time as looking after other children, um, limits on the number of children that they can have in their care and so on and so forth. And we've seen over recent years just a steady decline in the number of childminders in the sector, just as we have seen, you know, growing. Number of nurseries that are simply being forced I think it's to close. down to about
1: 30,000 uh, just last year when it was about 100,000 in the mid 90s. Mm. So clearly there have been this huge decline in childminders. No,
0: and I don't, you know, that is not demand driven. A lot of parents out there would be very happy to have childminders look after their children, perhaps after school, perhaps after nursery. Uh, but that's that option, you know, it simply isn't available. And I talked a bit earlier about grandparents, but of course, you know, it, such as our living in our modern age that, you know, often families, young families, don't live near uh, the grandparents; they can't depend on grandparental care uh, in the same way. Um, but equally, there are some sectors of, the, of society where you know larger families still all live together. So you have one, you know, three generations say living under the same roof. And it always struck me as rather unfair that we have this childcare subsidy for all parents, regardless of means. Uh, at least the fifteen free hours, um, when. You know, a lot of people, particularly perhaps those of lower incomes, are not actually relying on it at all. So, what I'd rather see, you know, very interested in looking at a voucher system, but also much more targeted support at those who really need it. Um, Not least at a time when we're in an economic tailspin, we probably shouldn't be handing out, you know, know, massive subsidies to the middle classes.
1: Absolutely. So, you've you've touched a little bit about uh, on this uh, voucher system, Mm. and I've spoken to uh, my colleague Glenn Shackleton, who sort of spoke about. the ways in which voucher systems effectively allow parents that choice and there's also that competition between nurseries and childminders but also between them individually and when the government actually takes a step back it allows there to be created the the sort of childcare industry to be created allows it to be a a real market rather than being a, a government intervened one and it means that parents are able to have that kind of choice. How would you sort of set up a childcare industry with these government voucher systems? How what would
0: that sort of look like? Well, I think it's obviously got to be means tested. We can't be dishing out vouchers to those who, you know, simply do not need it. And it might feel you know, terribly unfair to those families who are just on on the cusp. But absolutely, it needs to be directed at those from lower incomes um, in, you know, in the greatest need. Um, and you talked about competition now, and obviously that's so important. And that is what we're seeing less and less of in the childcare sector. Um, and what is going hand in hand with that, of course, is less choice. Uh, for parents. And-, and I guess part of that is with the, with the earlier
1: statutory framework. Mm-hmm. It means that, you know, like we said, you know, that childminders, for example, that are perfectly capable of creating a, a caring and safe environment for children. But then, of course, if they are less well educated, or if English is a second language, or other factors that mean they are unable to create those kind of detailed records or follow a curriculum that was prescribed by mm-hmm. the government, it means that then um, what that you know the balance comes to shifted to more formalised childcare, like nursery where they have the resources to be able to actually adhere to the statutory framework. So interventions like that have clearly taken away and make, made childcare more formalised.
0: That's right. And I think, you know, your point there about adhering to those regulations is a really important one because, of course, and we see this pattern across the economy, but a problem you have is once a, a nursery or a, a chain of nurseries is established and they've hired the staff in order to comply and meet whatever the various regulations requirements are, well well, they can often be the loudest voices protesting <laughs> yeah. against the loosening of those regulations and we absolutely saw that before the government uh, changed the teacher to child ratios from one to four to one to five for children over the age of two as it did recently and it, it came up against such fierce resistance textbook to textbook rent
1: seeking right effectively it's it's those industries and those particular formalized um, child care industries that have done particularly well under these more stringent regulations mm. of course they're going to you know uh, argue against. Because it, it would mean that they'll be competing with cheaper childcare, then actually that might uh, reduce their income as well. So it's interesting how that regulation has had those kind of unintended consequences.
0: Exactly. I think that the um, losers are often sort of obvious, and in this case, um, you, you will have uh, established nursery brands saying that it's, there's, there are safety concerns yeah. that if you loosen teacher-child ratios, then um, you know children will be less safe in those childcare settings. But you know, as I pointed out earlier, you do not have such tight regulations uh, on the continent and you don't have, thankfully, children falling out of windows uh, (laughs) on a twice daily basis. So (laughs) there is a way to ensure uh, the health and well-being and safety of Mm -hmm. children. Um, And I think, you know, you will hand more uh, power and decision-making to nurseries themselves so if they it so happens that they have a cohort of young children who have perhaps uh, mild learning disabilities who require a little bit more attention perhaps some behavioral issues well maybe the nursery will decide that actually that is a particular class size a class um, where the size needs to be smaller a grouping where you might need more teachers uh, to children but if you have you know a different set of uh, needs among the Children in your care, then you can decide to have you know a looser approach to to those regulations. But no, you're right. It's it, you know it, it, we've seen classic uh, sort of vested interests lobbying the government uh, for regulations to remain in place because it's very difficult for them, having taken on the staff to meet um, meet those requirements, to then cut those staff loose, um, and they will be very worried about nimbler, uh, newer entrants coming into the market and being able to uh, undercut them. So. It, it, I think it's absolutely to be welcomed that the government actually did make that take this step forward, albeit at the same time as massively increasing the subsidy.
1: Absolutely, and if the government were serious about reducing the cost of childcare, they would be implementing those kind of supply-side reforms. Clearly, it isn't the case that there are these huge safety concerns. If that was the case, I think it you know it would fall on parents to make those kind of decisions. I think most parents are clever enough, intelligent enough to decide what kind of environment is safe for their own children. And clearly, you know, that this this choice and this kind of freedom is being taken away from those childcare providers, but also from parents themselves. So If you were sort of trying to reform this kind of education system itself and trying to uh, reduce the cost of childcare, potentially that would have an impact on the gender pay gap, Mm. what sort of reforms do you think that should be implemented?
0: Well, I would definitely further loosen teacher-to-child ratios, be much bolder than the government has been. um, And there would just need to be a willingness uh, in government to stand up to uh, what would be very fierce um, opposition, resistance to to any such move. I would almost throw the EYFS on the bonfire. I don't think a lot of this stuff is actually uh, necessary. Um, I would have a fun a fundamental rethink about what why the government is actually involved in childcare at all Whether we need to be spending perhaps up to ten billion pounds a year uh, on a, You know as I say a sector that until around three decades ago um, We it's entirely private it's, uh, yeah. almost entirely private spending perhaps a, a few hundred million pounds a year uh, on it And the, the, the amount has just gone up enormously. I would look at um, Scrapping uh, the subsidy or means testing the subsidy so that it isn't just going to uh, the middle classes while ensuring that you have a safety net for for those parents of uh, lower-income children from disadvantaged backgrounds. I think, you know, another part of this is whether actually we put children into school too young. Um, You know, a a child who turns four in August will go to school, primary school, in the September. What do they really need to be in formal education at such a young age? Or could we fix childcare and then actually, expand the sector and have children starting school at a younger age because you know we talk about female labour market participation and in some ways if you can afford it, the childcare years, the early years, are actually a lot easier to juggle than when your child starts at primary school and they begin at 8.30 in the morning and finish at 3 o'clock every day well very few jobs are able to uh, accommodate that so that is another thing that the government needs to be looking at, why is it that we have three big holidays every year rather than Perhaps a five-term year, um, and how could that how could that help women? So no, I think it, you know it, it absolutely it just needs to have a, a real sort of reset um, when it comes to childcare while absolutely ensuring that the overarching objective is to give women choice rather than to try and encourage them into being stay-at-home mums or being part-time mums or being, you know, mums who work full-time because at the moment too many women simply don't feel like they have that.
1: Absolutely. Annabelle, thank you so, so much. I think you've perfectly debunked the gender pay gap, but also spoke a little bit about how we could reform the childcare system. So thank you so much for joining me. And thank you to our lovely audience for joining us here on the IA YouTube channel as well. If you enjoyed this episode of Breaking Barriers and would like to hear more from the Institute of Economic Affairs, hit the subscribe button and watch our other videos. Thank you.